Hi, welcome to episode 15 of Exploring Astrophysics with my guest today, Marcus Keel. Marcus is a PhD student at University College London and is interested in a diverse range of fields including astrochemistry and cosmology. How did you first become uh, involved or interested in astrophysics? Yeah, so when I was first in my bachelor's, I actually started as a computer science major. And as I was doing that, I realized I preferred using coding and programming for something else. And at the time that I was doing it, the, the Kepler mission was first announcing all the exoplanets that they were discovering. And I just was so fascinated by it that I was reading more about that than about my actual work that I had to do for the courses. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my first foot into astrophysics itself is, is reading about the Kepler missions, the exoplanets that were being discovered around other, around other stars and such. And I just thought I really, I would like to be part of that. And I looked up, you know, can someone who's doing computer science be part of it? And I realized that actually a lot of a PhD and a lot of research does require some form of coding, especially mm -hmm. nowadays. Like you, you, you can't, there is some people that can do research without needing barely any coding. Like they just need to be able to produce a plot. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of stuff, especially when it comes to these big missions like Kepler, Euclid, the, the, the massive telescopes that are going up like SKA, you need people who can program. Mm -hmm. And if, if you don't have those people, those programs, those, those, those projects will fall apart. And so I thought, okay, I can definitely continue doing what I like, which is the programming and the computer science, but I can also be part of some of the astrophysics things and actually do some of the research in there. And so that's what's kind of led me into it. Mm -hmm. um, and originally I really wanted to do exoplanet research, but um, for where I chose my master's, I actually, <laughs> I was looking at their website on if they do um, exoplanets and stuff. And I, I found some old articles of exoplanets and it turned out that they had a big exoplanet group that kind of went away when one of the professors retired. Oh. So I got, to a, I got to a university to do my master's where there was no exoplanets anymore. However, there was some amazing cosmologists and they really they pulled me into the, the larger scale of things rather mm -hmm. than the exoplanets to actually be fascinated by large scale structure formation, which um, it's like when the, when the universe first started coming into existence from the big bang, it's, it's mostly uniform density distributions with some slight deviations, but as it expands, those slight deviations get larger and larger and gravity forces the things to actually be pulled in to first, first into planes, like, uh, like a sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. And then where two sheets of paper meet, they, they pull in further to form like these strands, which then where strands meet, they pull in even further to form these knots. Mm -hmm. And it was just, I was like beguiled by it from the, from the way the professor was being taught it was teaching it and so then it pulled me to the larger scale rather than exoplanets which are so small that we hadn't really seen them before all the way to okay this is so large that we can't even visualize it 
with one telescope. Like we need to do full sky survey to even just get part of what we think we should see. So that's what really pulled me further into it. Mm -hmm. So would you say cosmology is sort of your main interest currently? And if so, are there, are there projects and missions that you're pursuing in that field? Um, so that was my master's. And then actually during my master's, because, because again, my, my focus on computer science, I, I did machine learning with my master's. Mm -hmm. So I, I was trying to... I was trying to write an emulator, which if you don't know what that is, you can think of an emulator like a microwave when compared to a chef. A chef will take ingredients, he'll do something, he'll cook it, and then he'll produce this amazing meal to you. And a microwave, you can put in some ingredients and you can heat it up. And then afterwards, you also have something hot on a plate. <laughs> now, depending on the inputs that you give to it, it'll have a, you'll have a better output garbage in garbage out was what we often mm -hmm. say but this this the machine learning and the focus on that cosmology does a lot of that and and they're very good at it however at the time that i was applying there wasn't many cosmology machine learning phds that i found um, and so instead i found this other one which i thought was also interesting and kind of tied back to what i'd originally started with and focused on um, and that is an astrochemistry PhD, but um, as part of a European network project. So mm. I'm, I'm one of 17 PhD students that are part of the, the ACO project, the Astrochemical Origins. Um, and I'm actually, I'm biased because I'm part of it, but I actually really, really like the idea of this project as well, um, mm. because we're not just astrophysicists. There's two students who are instrumentalists. They're currently in Manchester and they're developing new um, instruments for radio telescopes. Oh. So that way you can get better observations of molecular lines in different uh, gaseous environments in space. Then I believe there's four or five like theoretical chemists. So not even astrophysicists. They, mm -hmm. they couldn't explain to you how a black hole works or anything like that. I mean, that is a more difficult topic anyway, but they never took any of those classes. They just have done chemistry and now they've been asked to apply that chemistry to an astrophysical um, thing or, or to, to environments that we would observe in, in, in space. And then we have like another four or so observers who use telescopes to observe um, interstellar the interstellar medium so so you have collapsing stars or collapsing clouds which will form stars or uh, pre-stellar cores or baby stars essentially and they're trying to observe those objects in order to try and understand what is the chemistry that is there like what molecules are actually there mm -hmm. and then there's the last bit which is basically just software people and that that's where i'm in in that group so we we focus on improving modeling codes uh, that are not just theoretical chemistry and not just astrophysics. They kind of are in the middle, um, but also we work on statistical tools. And um, one, one, of the, one of the software guys is working with the theoretical chemists and the observers in order to try and 
emulate the theoretical chemistry because a lot of that requires quantum level calculations, like literally calculating the, the quantum state of certain things in order to understand how do the molecules move around on dust grains. Um, and, but that takes a long time. And so he's working on trying to speed that up, but in a way that still results in good accuracy. And they've got some, they've got some interesting research. Um, if I have it here at hand, yeah, they actually modeled uh, what they think a hundred molecules of water would look like. And they sent me the files, so I was able to 3D print it. So this, the, the surface that you're seeing here is the potential surface and each bump in it is a is an atom. It's either hydrogen or or oxygen, but it's mm -hmm. it's from water molecules. And so they've they've done some really interesting work, and and I love being part of this project despite it taking me away from from cosmology. Mm -hmm. In terms of the project that I am still excited about in cosmology, I would definitely have to say Euclid. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's a pretty big investment telescope. The telescope itself is not that big, but it's it's massive investment. And the professor that I did my master's with was part of the, the Euclid consortium. And so I got to got to go meet some of the people that are there. And a lot of the research is just so fascinating. The there's a there's another professor where I did my master's who does gravitational lensing, which you've heard have you heard of that? Yeah, uh, I think I interviewed one, a guest who had worked on that. So. Oh, awesome. So then you do know already. Um, yeah, so he's he's huge in the gravitational lensing. And so Euclid is like, he, he just, the moment that they started talking about it, he was like, I need to be part of this. Uh -huh. And he's he's just also a fascinating guy. So I'm, I'm excited to see what Euclid will bring in general to the cosmology community. But I'm really excited to see what his group is going to do because I've got a friend who's part of his group and they're already working like trying to simulate some of the findings that they could find like not they're not trying to simulate the data but they're trying to they're trying to create simulations of what they expect the noise in the data to be in order to understand how well they're going to be able to constrain the cosmological parameters in order to understand exactly like is the universe going to expand forever? Is it expanding at an accelerated, like we already know it's expanding at an accelerated rate, but is that acceleration going to continuously increase or is it likely to eventually slow down? Like, are we going to collapse again eventually or, or what's going to happen? And I know none of us are going to live long enough to see any of it happen, but I'm still interested in, in if it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I would say that like, in terms of cosmology, that's one of my, the, one of the big projects I'm following. Mm -hmm. So uh, going back to the astrochemistry um, research you're doing, it's hard when the, you're doing this research to actually measure right any anything physically. So how is it that you that you get these measurements and can make deductions about that? Yeah, so that's that's absolutely true. It's it's very difficult to truly get a hundred percent knowledge of of what it is that you're observing. Mm -hmm. What the work I focus on is actually creating the tools for the observers. So they, they deal with the observations. I deal with the, the data they get from it. Mm -hmm. But when they're observing, 
um, we, we have databases of different molecules and what transitions we expect them to do based on just where the electrons are in the molecules and, and how they vibrate um, both, both by, by stretching or by, by um, rotating or all kinds of different ways. We, we've, we know it from theoretical calculations, how, not for all molecules, but for a lot of them, how these um, actions should produce light or absorb light because it's, it's all, it's all in quantized packets, essentially, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you, when you have hydrogen, for example, the, the easiest one, and you have an electron around it and it goes from the lowest level to the next level up, there is an exact, um, um, there's, I want to say exact, there's, there's an amount of energy plus or minus a small error margin that is required for that electron to go from the lower state to the next up, upper state. And this is, this applies all across different species of, of atoms and molecules. It includes the, the vibrations and the, the stretching. It can, they all have ways in which they actually release the photons and those can then come to us or absorb the photons. So for example, if you're looking at a cloud and behind the cloud, you have a star, some of the light is going to be absorbed by these same transitions, depending on the temperature of the cloud. If it's very cold, it's very likely to actually absorb things. If it's very hot, it's unlikely to be able to absorb as much light, but more likely to emit light itself. And so in observing what lines we see, we can actually try and get an understanding of what chemicals are there. Because especially if you're very confident on, let's say you have three lines and you're very confident you know which line one of them is, you can then estimate what the other two would be. And so that gives us an idea of what molecules are there and what, um, what atoms. And we can use that information then in one of two ways to try and understand the physics of the medium we observed. Uh, one of the more traditional ways I wanna say is, is to do is to take your observation and then do a radiative transfer modeling, either by hand or using codes that exist. And you essentially, you have your observation values already. So you're trying to understand what physical parameters in the radiative transfer model would actually produce the same emissions that I have here with all the extra additional information that you may have from your observation then you can say, okay, these physical parameters would actually make sense. And you can then run a chemical modeling code. So you understand how some of the molecules would behave based on theoretical calculations or even experiments, lab experiments. You understand how some of the molecules would behave in a cold temperature or in a very low density environment. And so you can, we can create a chemical model from that, that we can also create as a code. So you can you can take the, the parameters that you had from before and you can say, okay, what would the chemistry look like or have to look like in order to produce these parameters? And so then you can run it through a code in that way. And this can take a lot of time because you might have to run a lot of different models in order to actually find the one that corresponds or find the group of ones that correspond to the observation that you made. And even, even there, 
we we obviously bear in mind that we might be wrong about some things because we make a lot of assumptions when we're when we're creating these codes. We can't perfectly recreate the interstellar medium in a chemical code. There's a lot of assumptions that go into it. However, we are also very confident in it because as we make new discoveries, we update the codes and we have gotten validation from things because we might observe one object in one way and we might say, okay, observing it in this way, we see these molecules from the knowledge that we have from theory and from modeling. Those molecules can only exist like that with this emission at these temperatures and this density. But someone else might observe it in a completely different way and do different modeling. They may not care about the chemistry as much and they might find the exact same temperatures and densities. And this, this does happen quite a bit where someone will do it in a different way and they get the same temperatures and densities. So while we do make a lot of assumptions, we're also confident in them. We, we mention them, of course, <laughs> anytime you publish anything, you have, to, you have to put in your uncertainty measurements. Mm. Um, but we, we do make a lot of the assumptions as well, nonetheless. The other way in which you can do it, and this is the way that I actually do it, is what's called full forward modeling. And it's more of a statistical approach. So the previous, the previous approach is a very, I have this object, I want to understand this one object very well, which is great. Um, but then the full forward approach, which is the one I do, is I don't necessarily need to understand every single detail about this one object. I just need to get a rough estimate of a lot of objects. And to do that, instead of saying I have this observation and I and go back to the chemical code, I say, okay, I have these observations, I'm going to set them aside. I'm going to run the chemical code and then I'm going to run the radiative transfer code with the information from the chemical code and then I'm going to have observations. Now, now that I have these mock observations, these modeled observations, I'm going to compare them to the actual observations I got. And from there, I can then run the code again. But instead of doing it by hand, I actually have a code that will randomly select the starting positions of the chemical code. So the starting parameters that the chemical code gets. And when it's then told how different it is from the true observations, it will then take a step in the parameter space to a different part. So let's say it has a temperature of uh, one times 10 to the 10 and a temperature of 20 Kelvin, which is very cold. Uh, but then it, the code says, well, actually that's really, really far away from the actual values like the observations that come out are very far away from the actual values, it'll go, okay, well, then maybe I try a density of 10 to the 11 and a temperature of 40 Kelvin. And it keeps taking these steps. The, where it goes is kind of random, but the closer it gets to actually getting the real value, the closer it gets to the real values, the more likely it is to stay in that position and the more likely it is to take a smaller step in the parameter space. And so it basically tries to map the parameter space without having to run every model in the parameter space because that would take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's trying to sample parts of it and find where is it actually close to the true value. And in doing that, 
you lose some of the aspects that the previous method had. The previous method can really understand a single object very well. You can't with my method. However, it is a good way to actually understand what parameters would we expect this object to have. And it can help in classifying that object. So like if we observe something that we don't know what it is, and we use my approach, we could get an estimate of what the parameters should be. And we can then say, well, based on this estimate, it's a pre-stellar core, or it's uh, a hot Carino, or anything like that. We can basically, we can classify it then, which could inform us on what other types of observations might we want to make in order to better understand it. Or even to help the the other ones to do their full modeling in, in a way that they could really understand this one object. I've given them a starting point with mine, so I've saved them considerable amount of time. So when you mention parameter space, does that mean you sort of have like an upper and lower bound as to what those parameters could be? And then you're trying to find the the closest value in in that sort of area. And also, is this where you use your machine learning to get optimal parameters? Is that how you go about doing that? Um, so I do have a range, but that range can be changed. So okay. the, the way that I set the range in my code is I, I use the observations I have, and I try to use any information that I have from those observations in order to get an understanding of what temperatures are actually likely to be. Because if I see a molecule's emission line that requires a very, very cold temperature, then obviously I want to allow a very low temperature so that it can actually get into there, like so that it can actually get down to the temperature that this one molecule would require. Mm -hmm. So, so there, is, there is that aspect to it is you do have to bear in mind what it is you're observing. If you don't know what it is you're observing, you have to try and use all the information you have or you have to make the, the ranges very large so that everything is accounted for. The, the more narrow you make it based on information that you have, the faster it'll run because every, every combination of parameters is, is one point uh, that it could, it could actually calculate. And those calculations take time. Mm -hmm. So if there's fewer points, it's fewer calculations. On, in terms of the machine learning, for this code that I've created, first and foremost, it's just a statistical approach. So um, I don't know how much machine learning people have been on, on with you, but machine learning is essentially statistics applied to coding and applied to, to different problems. You, you always have some probability, like how likely is this to be is this to be correct? Like I, I've written this algorithm and all it does is it tells me, well, I'm 70% sure that this is a cat and I'm 30% sure it's a, it's a dog. So my answer is it's a cat and you tell it, yes, you're right or no, you're not right. And so in terms of the machine learning that I do right now in this code, I don't have any. Okay. I'm doing what's called a Monte Carlo Markov chain. Um, so a Monte Carlo Markov chain is essentially 
what I described earlier, you have a point, a combination of parameters, and it will try to evaluate that combination. And it'll compare it to whatever input you gave it. So the true value, if you might want to call it that. And if the probability is high that they are the same, here you would normally use a likelihood function to, to describe how likely it is to be, um, how likely the, the, the modeled version is to actually fit the, the true version. If it's a high likelihood, it's going to stay at that point or take smaller steps. If it's a if it's very unlikely, it'll take a step. And normally what it'll do is it'll hold on to that to the first point where it was. It'll take a step and it'll evaluate that step as well. If the new step has a higher likelihood than the old step, it'll go to the new step and it'll repeat. If the new step has a lower likelihood, it will not take the step and it'll stay where it is and it'll try and take another step in a, in a different direction. And so the, the likelihood function I use is uh, a Bayesian likelihood, which is just a likelihood function in statistics. If you, if you get deeper into astrophysics, you'll find a lot of it is coding and statistics. Mm -hmm. Like the, the nice things, the pictures and everything, they're all beautiful, but there's just something else to understanding the statistics. And it's, it's, once you get to that point, I, I, I almost feel like sometimes the equations are more beautiful when, when I fully understand what this equation is trying to say. And I'm not, I'm not a very mathematical person myself. I, it takes me a while to understand the equation and what it does. But once I do, I, I feel like it's, it's even more wonderful to understand what is happening there. And so essentially, the, the Bayesian likelihood just it takes your information, so it takes your two, your your model and your date and your um, true value. It subtracts them from each other, divides it by your uh, prior information, which, if you have some prior information, it can skew where the parameters should be or shouldn't be. If you don't, often you would just use what's called a, a top hat prior, and so this is where I put my my ranges. I basically say, in these ranges everything's the same likelihood. Outside of these ranges, ignore it. it. It means nothing. And then it gives you back a value and it tells you it has this likelihood or it has this likelihood. So if it's very likely, it'll be one, essentially. It'll basically say this is 100% chance that this data point equals the true inputs. That doesn't really happen. <laughs> Our models aren't that perfect. Um, but then the other way around as well, it, it is, Able, able to say, well, it's outside of the ranges, so the likelihood is zero. Mm -hmm. What I'm working on, though, at the moment to add to the code is I'm working on adding an emulator that would actually, instead of doing the chemical codes and the radiative transfer code, it would simply take the input parameters and it would give you the observation values that it thinks is the case. And to do this, I'm actually storing every single chemical model I use in a database. So it, to, for two reasons. One, as my code is running, this way it can pull directly from the database. And second, once I have the emulator written, I can train the emulator from the database. So this would allow me to then, in twofold, one, to make my code faster, but the second, 
it would also allow me to, to train an emulator on a lot of data. Because one of the things about machine learning is you need a lot of data in order to get it to actually produce results that make sense. And you can only trust those values, though the output within the parameter space in which it was trained. And that's why it's kind of the last thing that I was adding to my code is because I needed to map the parameter space first anyway. So adding it at the very end, I can then immediately start training it. Okay, um, so I have one last question and that's, so I understand that you're doing your PhD currently. So I've always wanted to know what is the process that, you, that you're sort of going through? What are the steps you need to take and what is sort of the final product of your PhD? Right, that's a very good question actually. <laughs> Um, so in order to get to the PhD, it depends on where you want to do it. If you want to do it in the States, which is where I did my bachelor's and where I was originally applying to do my PhD when I then decided to go to Germany for the master's. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to do it in the States, you need a bachelor's degree. You need to take the um, physics GRE as well as the normal GRE which is the, uh, oh, I forget exactly what the acronym stands for, but it's essentially a way of standardized testing people who graduated. Oh, okay. the, the regular GRE is basically just, can you do these math things? Can you do, do you know English well enough to be able to actually you know, tell us what this word means or finish the sentence or whatever? And then you have to write an argument, like an essay about an argument. You're given a point of view that you have to try and defend and you have to write an argument about it. The physics GRE, if I remember correctly, it's 100 questions or 200 questions that are all just multiple choice, just about physics. And it's one of the most grueling exams anyone could sit through after the bachelor's. I'm sure later on you get more difficult things, but during uh, right after the bachelor's, it's grueling to sit there. Um, and then they don't even give you a percentage based on how well you did they give you a percentage based on how well everyone did. So for example, if everyone except for you got all the answers correct, like all the questions correct, and you're the only one that missed a single question, you would get the lowest score and everyone else would get the highest score. Oh. So it's it's a bit, it's, it's weird. But then it, you apply directly to the, to the PhD and the PhD starts immediately, it's a five-year program. The first two years are normally courses. And then at some universities, you have to do a, an entry exam, is what it's called, even though it's might not at the very beginning. Um, and essentially, once you pass this exam, you then do research. In Europe, in most countries, as, at least as far as I know, the PhD normally just requires a master's or a very good, like very, very good bachelor's degree. And you, you just apply to it similar to a job because there's only so many positions that go around and, and it's all with funding or almost always with funding. There's, there's a few countries where you're going to want to like keep an eye out on it. Sometimes they don't give you funding automatically sometimes they just have positions and then if you get a position you can then apply for funding um, but it's not always advertised sometimes you just have to ask 
But once you get it, at most universities, once you're in the research phase, it's essentially just a job. So I, I, I say just a job. <laughs> it's not like there's, there's some kind of outline of you have to do this today. Uh, I mean, more like you come into the office and you do your research, whatever your project is, you do your research. If you have a professor who only comes in late and you want to be there when your professor's there, you might come in late. If you're the type of person that likes to work nine to five and your professor is okay with you just being there Monday through Friday, nine to five, then that's what you do. Most professors, they don't make you change your hours. In fact, very few do. It's, it's considered it's considered really bad if your professor tells you you have to come in at these hours. Unless, of course, you're not showing up to work at all. <laughs> but most of the time, it's just you come in, you do your work, you code, or you, you do your research, you try to understand whatever it is your problem is, and then you start writing up your article, writing up your research. Um, and so, sorry. You, you, you write up your research and you, you just, you go from there. In some countries, the first year you also have courses. For example, at UCL where I am, we had one astrophysics course that every first year student had to take. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it rotates what the course is, but they have them available every year. There's at least one. There's a, there's a couple here and there, but you have to take at least one. In the University of Bonn, which is where I did my master's, once you're done with your courses and your master's and you go on to do the PhD, you, you don't have to take any courses at all. You're essentially just treated like a, like a mini postdoc, which is the job you get after you do your PhD. And throughout your PhD, you're normally expected to produce around three articles. So each year you should write up the research you've done in a way that you have a self-encompassing article where you, just a scientific paper, essentially. You, you have an introduction, you explain what it is you did, you explain your methodology, you explain your results, what it means, how it compares to other people's work. You submit it to a journal, their other scientists will then look at it, they'll peer review it, They'll, they'll give you feedback on where, you, where they think that maybe you didn't do a good analysis or, or where you maybe need to make some corrections. Maybe they'll send you other articles in response to be like, maybe you want to review this just in case. Like, it seems like this would be important information for you. And with this extra information, it changes your results, stuff like that. A lot of this will happen from your professor already and from you yourself. You should be looking out for other articles that are popping up and how they could apply to your work. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it, you, you write up your thesis and your thesis is just a summary of the work you've done. Depending, again, depending on the university, Sometimes you can just take the three articles you've created, write an introduction for it and a conclusion and staple it together, <laughs> which, which sounds silly, but the articles have already been peer reviewed. Other people have already looked at them. They've already had opportunities to read them. They've had opportunities to tell you where they think you're wrong. They've had opportunities to give counter arguments of, of what you've said. So it's already been through a process to 
either solidify it as good science or to help you change it to be good science. And so it, it, it doesn't make sense to then rewrite all of that when you've already have it in a point in, in, in a format that the scientific community accepts. Mm-hmm. So you essentially just, you, you take the, the articles you've written, you put them together. De- now, depending on what your project is, you may or may not get three articles. You might get two, you might get four, you might get more or even less. Um, my, my partner, for example, she did one article, but it's a very, very thick, long article because all the work she did needed to be cross-checked in all kinds of different ways. And it was used for a lot of different things, but all basically could be summarized in one paper. It wouldn't have made sense to split it into three because then she would have to repeat herself in each one. So it made a lot more sense to have it as one, but it's a very, a very long article. So for her, it was just one. For a lot of others, it's three or two. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on your project. The only other thing that I would say that is different for research as it is to other jobs is often your projects are picked by you. Like your, your, your supervisor is going to guide you and whatever it is you signed up for, you probably have to go in that direction. But when I started on my PhD, for example, I was just told you need to create a tool that could help the observers and the chemists. Like to, to help the observers use the information that the chemists have gave, given us. And that was it. So my, my professor sat down with me, had a chat with me, and she just explained some of the things that would be useful or, or in which direction we should go. And then she said, okay, you can, you can go try and think of it. Here's some other articles. Here's some other tools that have been created. You can see what hasn't been created yet that you think would be useful. And so that's when I came up with the project that I had now that I explained earlier. And I, I proposed it to her saying this, I could make this, might take me some time, but I could make this. And she was all over it. She thought it was a, she thought it was a great project. Um, and I've, I've been working on it since then. That was almost two years ago now. And the article is under revision right now. So it's, it's being peer reviewed while I'm still adding additional things. So the base, the base code is already done. Everything I'm doing on top of that now is for version two. Mm. Um, but that's already being peer reviewed. And I've already started using it for some other projects. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I thought at first, when I, whenever I thought of a PhD, I thought it was something you sort of work on five years, like independently and then submit something. But this makes a lot more sense and is quite a bit less daunting. Yeah, so, it, it's, it seems daunting from the outside. I've been there as well. Like when I was applying to some of the PhDs I was applying to, there was some places they wanted me to actually give a give an example or not an example. They wanted me to write a proposal of what it is I was going to do. And that seems so daunting. But when you actually think about it, that's what researchers do is they, they try to think of what is it that I think would the, the community would benefit from. And they try and work on that. And especially as a PhD student, which is like PhD candidate, PhD student, you're, you're still being taught how to do these things. 
So you're never, you're almost never going to be alone. Almost all supervisors are there for their students and they understand that you're new to it, that you're, you're still learning how to actually do these things. Some, I've, I've met some supervisors, they tell you what your first project should be. Just the first one though. But they still let you explore it. They still let you code it, try to find the analysis, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, with my master's, my professor told me, I want you to do, like, I told him I want to do machine learning. And he said, okay, I want you to do an emulator for this. He didn't tell me what I had to use. He didn't tell me what codes I was supposed to use. He just said, do an emulator. Go research what it means to do an emulator. Like, just go find articles or books, read about it and start making an emulator and then come back to me and tell me what it is you found in those in those books and those articles and we'll discuss what would be the best thing to do and there's a lot of professors that will do that with first year students as well rather than just with master students because there's an understanding that you're still learning you're still transitioning into being a researcher so it's nothing to be afraid of it's just a different way of working mm-hmm. like, like when you go to a company for example a lot of times it'll be like, we want something that does this. So that's what you do. And in research, you just don't have that. You, It's more of a, what do you think the community would benefit from? What do you think are like the astrophysics community would gain from your project? And so then you do it. And that's also how you get money. Like once you get beyond the PhD, all you're doing is basically advertising to people who give money for astrophysics what it is you do and why you think it's useful and why you think the astrophysical community needs it. And then they'll decide if they give you money or not for that. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's not, it's nothing to be afraid of or, or to feel daunted by. It's just different. And I think that's why it seems so daunting. It's because we don't really have many other things many other jobs that are like this like research is kind of its own way of being well thank you so much for speaking to me taught me a lot of stuff i didn't know so thanks i'm glad about that i hope you enjoyed it i i definitely enjoyed it myself so thank you very much for the opportunity